Hey, welcome to another episode of Bootstrapped. This episode is a bit different to normal. Instead of me chatting with my co-host or interviewing somebody about how they run their bootstrap business, I'm the one getting interviewed. A regular listener had some questions about the way I acquired Sabre Feedback, and instead of answering them in private, we thought this would be a great thing that we could share with other people who might be interested exactly in what it takes to acquire another person's business. A little bit about the interviewer. His name is Matt Zoinit. He's the founder of Debug Beer. He's originally from Germany, but he lives in London. Matt had some really insightful questions, so now let's hand it over to Matt. On the previous podcast, I think you already mentioned that you bought the product and not the company. And was that clear from the start, or did you and the seller ever discuss like potentially buying another company as well? Oh, that's a good question. I think you're the first person ever to ask that, and it was something we had to talk about early on. The the previous owner, who confusingly is also called Matt, I think now I'm going. It's all a bit hazy in my mind, but I think he actually proposed I buy the whole company from him. I think that would have made things very much cleaner from his perspective. I didn't want to do that because I I believe that if his company would be sued or have any sort of legal problems in the years ahead for things that had happened while he had been the owner, I would have been also inheriting those liabilities. That's how I viewed it. It wasn't clear to me, but I just felt like I did not want to have his company. I wanted the product in my company. So we agreed early on that's what we would do. He was happy with that. And when you can agree on like a number that he wanted to to buy it for, what did that agreement look like? Was it like a simple email kind of outlining what you want to do or was there a lawyer involved in that? Mm-hmm. So we, I have to be careful not to say too much because I think uh, some of this is Matt's private stuff. But I think what we did is we agreed that the price would be a multiple of the, what they call seller discretionary earnings for a 12-month period. I forget the exact 12-month period, but we said whatever it is in that 12-month period, I'm, I'm going to offer you X times that. And we both agreed on that in principle. And then it was a matter of getting the paper, uh, the, the bookkeeping in order to make a nice profit and loss off those 12-month period. And we went through that a couple of times. We looked for anything that might have been forgotten, additional income or expenses. And finally, when the price was there, we just did the maths and that was it. We agreed. Now, Somebody more experienced in purchasing might have wanted to make the price actually dependent on whether it was growing or declining and the nature of customers. But I felt that for the price and the type of product, like at best we were were going to be arguing over a few thousand dollars or euros or actually in pounds was the price. And I felt it wasn't really worth complicating things that much. So I settled on that flat multiple of seller discretionary earnings. Are you familiar with seller discretionary earnings as a concept? I am-ish. You might want to explain it. So that's the profit the company makes plus any money the sell- the owner, so the seller draws out of the company. If they pay themselves an income, if they pay their own health expenses out of it or other other perks, because the idea is that that kind of normalizes the price regardless of the fact that some person, somebody might pay themselves very little for the product they own and put all the money back into the company and somebody else might try to take out as much as possible. So the profit itself is not actually a good reflection on what the price should be. It's the profit plus what the seller takes out of the company. And this, I think, is quite normal way to value 
uh, SaaS products at the type of scale we're talking about. So your agreement was kind of like, I'll give you like three times seller discretionary thingy and that was it or was there something more complex to it? No, it was that. And it was all just by email at first. The idea was once we settle on a natural price, we'll then go and get the, the legals. And so it wasn't binding, of course. Nothing's binding until you have a contract and it's signed. I guess at any point I could have said, actually, I've changed my mind and I want to walk away from this. And the, the seller could also, if at any point, said, actually, I've got a much better offer. And I, I was happy having that type of informal way. I don't think either of us would have been too upset if the sale hadn't gone through. And then after that agreement, you kind of went through like the bookkeeping and was there like a more formal agreement later on? Yeah. So we did get lawyers involved. This was something I insisted on. I just would feel very, very uncertain about agreeing on a purchase of something at that type of level without lawyers in place. They just, my theory is they just help you think about the things you should have agreed in place, like to what degree is the seller required to support the product in the months or years ahead to what degree is the purchaser taking on liabilities and so on so the idea is that if we think about all those things in advance with the help of lawyers a lawyer on my side and a lawyer on the seller's side then in six months time when there's a problem instead of us like getting angry with each other and perhaps getting lawyers then we get out the contract that we've signed we look at it and it says oh well here it says that uh the seller was had to make every reasonable effort to disclose things or the buyer accepts that they're responsible for paying for the ongoing support, even if it's a bug that's already there. You know, we, we, we agreed on all these things while we were sober and calm and level-headed and not doing it if something happened to make us angry. And that I thought we needed to get lawyers involved in. Can I talk a bit more about the lawyers? Because I think oh, yeah. that was actually, <laughs> it was quite difficult actually. So as as you know, the order of magnitude of the sale was low six figures. It's actually hard to find a lawyer who understands software, specifically SaaS, and is willing to be involved. Like there's not much money in it for them, right? They want to do like the multi-million dollar tech crunch type things. So I managed to find a lawyer pretty quickly on my side, but here in Spain, but the seller who was in the UK had trouble. And one of the problems is that I wanted the purchase to be done according to Spanish law. And English lawyers would just look at this contract and say, nah, forget it. Like, I don't know Spanish law. I'm not going to agree on this. So in the end, we had to find a a lawyer to help the seller, to represent the seller who was also in Spain, a, a Spanish lawyer who speaks good English. And the lawyer I had, he wanted to add a clause that the seller guaranteed the code to be bug free. Now, of course, the seller wouldn't agree to that. Anybody who works on software knows that's a laughable clause. You might say that we do your best effort to make sure the code is reasonably free of bugs. But to say you guarantee it to be bug-free, like, come on, there's the software that my computer runs on from Apple or from Microsoft or Google Chrome, these things are just full of bugs. We know this because they release bug fixes every, every two weeks or every month or something. Can you say like roughly like how much? It was four digits in euros, X okay. thousand euros. I actually don't remember off the top of my head. You mentioned what liabilities like are on like the side of the seller and the buyer. Do you remember kind of a bit more like what liabilities you kind of were taking on? 
I don't think there was anything unusual or surprising that, you know, the, the code as it was, was my responsibility and the content and the, the website and the domain names, all that, they all become mine. But so that's assets, I guess. The liabilities would be just the ongoing costs of server hosting and et cetera, et cetera. You know, the costs you have to pay to the providers. And I think limited at that, perhaps that's what we put in the contract. One thing you mentioned earlier is that the seller actually did some kind of ongoing support and development work on the mm. on the product after the sale. Was that kind of all agreed in the contract? And like, what did that look like? Was he like a normal freelancer or how did that work? So I think we might have said that for the first couple of months, he would take care of any like showstopper bugs. It raises the question of what defines showstopper. Again, I'm speaking of I'm hazy memory, so I might not have this exactly correct. And then after that, the agreement was that he would help for the first couple of months with showstopper bugs. And then after that, he would be available for X hours per month for X pounds per hour. And it's a very small amount of hours just to help with anything critical and or perhaps with the, the handover to a new developer. Now, although we did that, I have to say that the seller went above and beyond the purchase happened in March 2020. March 2020 is famous for other reasons. That's when the whole world had this huge shock of COVID. And my plan of initially getting a developer on pretty quickly to help for other reasons, family reasons, which I, I'll mention in a moment, we had to, I just couldn't do. And the seller of his own volition offered to actually extend that period in which he was willing to help out with uh bugs and even the occasional new feature and so on. The, the, what happened, regular listeners of this podcast will know that in March 2020, I was on holiday with my family in Australia. We were just about to come back to Spain where we live when the World Aviation Network shut down and we got stuck in Australia for four months. So my major concern at the time was what to do to find a place for us to stay, to find a way to get home. And that was taking all my energy and focus. So actually I the plans I had initially to kick into place as soon as I acquired Sabre Feedback got shelved. And in that regard, I was really grateful that the seller really, without any requirement for him to do so, uh, offered to help out for a lot longer with critical things. And I think it was three or four months ago, and finally he finished up on Sabre Feedback altogether, I suspect quite happily. Do you have a rough idea like how many hours you're going to spend on Sabre after the sale? The limit we had per month was very low, I think like 10 hours, something like that. So I guess if I'd really asked him to, he would have done more, but I was quite happy with not being too dependent on him and having it just like an emergency there I could use for. Of course, he was already, he had a full-time job and he has his own family and so on. So there was a limit to how much he was available, but yeah, certainly was something I uh, appreciated. And I think if I was to go through this whole process again, this is something I'd definitely do again, is to make sure the seller was available to help for an hourly fee for a next period of time. When you bought the business, what currency do you actually use? Because it sounds like you're within dollars, the seller is in the UK and you're in Spain. Like, How did you decide on that? We went with pounds. I don't know why we decided on pounds. Perhaps it was just the currency that he was doing his profit and loss statements in. So, and it would be logical. It, again, my memory is hazy. It might've been dollars that we converted to pounds, but I'm pretty sure that bookkeeping was in pounds. And of course that creates the problem of currency 
fluctuation. So I might agree to one price and then by the time I'm ready to pay, currency has gone up and down some percentage. But again, at the level we're talking at for the purchase, that was just a minor amount. Once you've agreed to buy the business, did it send you an invoice for that six-figure amount? That's actually a really good question. Again, you've got some great questions there, Matt. This one, um, after some months, or when it was time to do the annual accounts, my accountant here in Spain contacted me and said, I can't find the invoice for the purchase of Sabre Feedback. And I didn't know we were supposed to have an invoice. So I took the contract and said, look, this contract is what we use instead uh, is that good enough? And she made it work. Perhaps he should have issued an invoice. Uh, I don't know. It's the first time I've ever done something like this, acquired a business, and I actually didn't know that one was supposed to do that. And, and perhaps in UK bookkeeping, you don't. And in Spain, you do. This made things complicated that we were dealing with two different types of accounting systems and tax systems. So what else did you have to do on the accounting side? Because I guess you have this kind of outgoing money that goes from like your retained profits to the seller and then i guess you get some sort of asset back yeah it's like if you buy a, a piece of equipment it's not something that you write off against your tax straight away it's something you have to pre depreciate over so many years and i couldn't get clear information as to how that worked in spain now that we've actually purchased it it's one of those things that i think is very much dependent on the laws of the country you live in Maybe this is a bit too specific, but can you like write the entire sale off in like one tax year in Spain? No, you can't. That's I thought you could. That's uh, again, the, the information was hard for me to tell, but no, it turns out that it's going to be over some years. I guess the Spanish government sees it like a purchasing a piece of equipment, a large piece of equipment <laughs> that costs okay. a lot of money. Yeah, I, w I wish I could. That would have reduced my tax bill significantly for last year. I feel like in the UK, like for a small amount, you can write it off for taxes in the entire year, but like on the account, it's kind of depreciated over time. But then there's like so. one limit to it, which is like 500,000 or something where you actually have to do something else. And I don't know what that is. I'm jealous of people like you who run a business in the UK. I think the UK laws for companies and taxation, much friendlier to those of us starting off companies. Here in Spain, from day one, they wanted to treat me like I was the owner of an enormous enterprise. And just, I don't know for sure, but just what I seem to hear from people who talk about running businesses in the UK, it's such a simple process compared to here in Spain. How did you finance the process? Did you just have the money lying around in like the business bank account or did you have to like personally loan money to the business? Uh -huh. So I had recently sold the desktop app that I started. That was the start of my company back in 2008. So I sold that in late 2019. And that actually was quite a chunk of money that I didn't know exactly what to do with. I thought I could throw it back into my main product, Feature Upvote, or I could do something I'd long wanted to do, which was to acquire a, a business that seemed like it could be doing a lot better. So I had the money there and I, I paid with that. I have to say that seeing that money disappear from my company's bank account was actually quite a um, strange feeling. And I, after I'd done that, I was asking myself, have I just done the wrong thing? There's other things I could have used that money for, such as taking it as dividends and using it as a deposit for a, a house. But yeah, it was money that I happened to have sitting in yeah. a company bank account. And how do you actually pay that money? How does it work for a larger amount? So I wanted to use escrow.com 
that was in the contract that would do that. And it actually turned out really hard for me to get the money into escrow.com. After a couple of failed attempts to get the money into escrow.com, I discovered that escrow didn't actually accept money coming from TransferWise for whatever reason, I don't know. So again, the memory is a bit hazy, but I think eventually I just decided to pay the the seller directly from my TransferWise account. We'd been talking together for some months about this. He, he was had quite a uh, reputation in the bootstrap community. And I just felt like the person I was dealing with was honest enough. So eventually I transferred half the money to him from my TransferWise account. He transferred the assets to me. I transferred the other half of the money to him. So both of us at some point were risking quite a bit. But yeah, that's what we did. I would have preferred to have gone through an escrow system, but the one I tried to use just did not work. So how did the extra handover go? What did you start with? Did you start transferring the domain or the hosting or what did you do? So the contract had a list of all the assets and uh, I also had that in a in a spreadsheet. And once the first half of the money was paid, yeah, we just went through this. I don't think it was a particular order. We just had to get everything done. The domain name is an obvious starting point, especially as it takes a little bit of time. If you've ever exchanged a domain from one person to another, it's a little bit of a verification process that can take some days. Yeah, a lot of the other things are quite straightforward, just changing the the username or the email and password on various accounts, such as the payment processes account and hosting accounts and so on. That stuff is done in instantly. So I think in one sitting of a couple of hours, we got almost everything done. But the big one was the domain name. All right. Oh, and of course, uh, the repo, all the source code was stored on Bitbucket and I use Git. So I had to, GitHub, I should say. So I had to make a Bitbucket account and get those, the, the, that transferred via like a change of ownership. And I think Saber was kind of using Fastspring for payments. Did you have to kind of, was it easy to like just change it to a different business there? Did you have to change the currency, anything like that? It's uh, another good question. When you, you sign up for a service such as Fastspring, of course, they ask you to agree to things. And we just changed the, the ownership details on the account to me, and I didn't have to go through that process again. So you could argue that uh, Fastspring and I, like, relationship hasn't been gone through the proper process of agreeing to terms and conditions, whatever. But that's all we did. We just changed the email address, password, and bank account details in the Fastspring account from the previous owner to me and that was it it was quite nice that most of the sales went through fast spring it was only one place to change the details what did complicate things with the payment processing is that some of the customers paid via invoice like and bank uh, transfer and those ones we had to get in touch with individually and say there's a new owner new bank details new company name you pay into and that generally went okay, but there were a couple of big companies whose purchasing departments made it really difficult for us. In one case, after a couple of months of trying to get them to pay the first invoice for I issued, their, their purchasing department just said simply, we're not paying this. We will only pay to such and such company name, which was the name of the previous owner. And at that point, they, they didn't even say like, here's the steps to get a transfer. They just outright said, we're not doing this. At which point I got really, really angry and I just went and suspended their account. I figured like if a, if a company refuses to pay for my product, I don't consider that a, a, a customer I can serve anymore. And that really changed things. Within a few hours, the P 
people who are actually using the product in the company got in touch and said, what's going wrong? Like we pay our invoices, but we can't use it. And I had to say, actually, you're not paying your invoices. This is what's happened. In hindsight, I probably should have been a little bit more patient and tried to talk to the product owners rather than the purchasing department. I had tried that a little bit and they kept on pushing me to the purchasing department. But funny, once I turned off their account, how quickly they got things changed. That's in one company's case. Another company, there was a very similar story, except it still took another few months to get them to pay. Even when they, in principle, had agreed, yes, there is a new owner, we accept that we need to put you in the procurement system. It still went around in circles with crazy, crazy demands, such as I'd issue them an invoice and they would say, oh, our invoices need to be in black and white. Your invoice has color in it. And at some point, I guess it was October. So we're talking uh, six or seven months after I had acquired the, the product. I just told them, look, we've been trying to get you to pay for six months. We're setting this deadline. We need you to pay the invoice by this date. The money has to be in my bank account. If it's not in there by that date, I'm afraid we have to close your account. We just can't keep servicing you if you're not paying. And again, that really kicked them into action, giving them that deadline of saying, this is what you have to do. If it's not done by this, we will no longer be able to service your account. Moved over to the new business. Yeah, everybody did. We didn't have any cancellations of those manually paying by bank transfer or invoice customers. I think if I went through the whole process again, I would give more mental energy to the fact that Customers who are set up to pay via bank transfers, and particularly those with purchasing departments, will be difficult and to have a good plan in place for how to deal with that. That was definitely the most stressful and time-consuming aspect of the whole process. Makes sense, yeah. I feel like a lot of companies, big companies for the purchasing department, ultimately as a company as a whole, they do want to pay. It's mm-hmm. just that nobody, at least on the purchasing side, will actually do the steps to to make the payment and make the purchase. And yeah, just being patient and kind of pushing on the on the product side exactly can help, even if it takes like six months or so. I've worked inside such large organizations. And what I recall is sometimes you just had to get somebody senior to care. They can cut through the normal procedures and go directly to... Uh, their partner at the same level in another department and say, look, we've got hot ups here. Can you make it happen? And the problem just goes away. Were these Uh, people paying monthly? Yeah, this is something that I think was actually a mistake the previous owner made. He, He gave in too easily to let people pay by invoice monthly. And I converted them all to annual. One refused to go annual, but they actually eventually about a year after the acquisition to stop being a customer but everybody else has gone annual and i think this is something i would recommend to anybody running a business like this if if people say can we pay manually by bank transfer you just without any room for negotiation you say only if you pay annually and only if you're on a one of our more expensive plans it's just not worth the hassle of dealing with manual bookkeeping or manual invoicing for people on a monthly basis And if the customer doesn't like that, well, okay, that's fine. There's other customers you can chase after and you're not giving yourself this continuous time sink. You also find often that people find a way to make it work. If you say we only offer bank transfers on or manual invoicing on annual on this amount, if that's not what they are willing to pay, they'll find a way to make it work with credit card at a monthly thing. 
how did the actual kind of transfer of the customers kind of from the previous company to the new company go? Did you kind of just send them an email? Did you give them some way to, to opt out or anything like that? Mm-hmm. The previous owner sent everybody an email the day of the transaction, like the official date of change of ownership. And then a week later, I sent everybody, everybody on the same list a similar email. So the previous owner, Matt, was basically saying, the ownership's changing. This is no longer my business. It's been great having you as a customer. Nothing's changing. We're not changing the product or the price. It's just the owner. And then a week later, I sent this similar email saying the same thing, saying, hi, nice to meet you. I think those emails were mostly just not even read. I, I think people generally don't even care. The occasional one might, but mostly it's just like, oh, okay, the product works. My pricing's not changed. Who do I care? The ones who did care, of course, were the, the ones paying mainly by invoice with the purchasing department, as we've already talked about. And that was a, a different story altogether. But the ones who are paying on a automated system monthly via credit card, Nobody seemed to care. Nobody went and cancelled. And were all the customers on like a standard terms of service for Sabre? Yeah. And did the terms of service change? Did you just kind of update the company name or did you like adjust them to use like something similar to feature upvote? Exactly. We took the feature upvote terms and conditions, which were more comprehensive and more fitting for the way I run the company. And we put that onto the Sabre feedback website I think I managed to I remember the search and replace the change feature upvote, the Sabre feedback. And uh, you could argue that we probably should have contacted every customer and told them the terms and conditions are changing. We didn't. I think it's one of those things I intended to do, but with the whole story I told of getting stuck in Australia with my family stranded and trying to get home, there's a lot of things I intended to do that kind of fell off the list and going being very, very professional in the way I handled the, the change of terms and conditions and so on was one of those things that fell off the list. We also added a better and more comprehensive GDPR policy. If anything, it was uh, better for the customers than the old one. It stated exactly what services we used and, and so on to a degree that wasn't the case with the old GDPR policy. I did change the date on the terms and conditions to say these come into effect as of this date. If anybody noticed, nobody said anything. And again, like, Although we make a big deal of terms and conditions, like you're you're a customer of several several SaaS products, I'm sure. Like, do you pay much attention to them? No, I don't. When you bought the business, did you get any kind of documents, get any technical documentation, or like any documentation of like business processes? Yeah, and it was kind of lacking. This is always going to be the case when the previous owner had run the business by himself for like. 10-ish years, maybe nine years. And I'm sure a lot of people listening, the only person in their businesses and things just happen half in your memory, half documented. Like it's, it's expecting too much to expect a person running a tech company as one person for those years to have every decision and process well-documented. However, he was around to help and for those first few months and where I got stuck with things, I would ask specific questions and he would, as best he could remember, one of the biggest problems was actually getting a development system set up. It turned out that the system could build on his computer, but had nobody else had been trying to build it on another computer. And that was actually a bit of an effort just to get repeatable steps in which I could set up a development environment with all the code checked out and running and so on. That did take some work, but in the first month or two after the purchase, we, we got that in place. Did you get access to his email account and kind of 
conversations he had with customers in the past, or did you just kind of forward any any new emails coming in? He handled almost all the communication via one info at saberfeedback.com email account. He also had a person like one with his name at saberfeedback.com, but we just took over the info at saberfeedback.com. Look, I took over the Gmail account. It was a or G Suite or G Workplace, who knows what they're calling it these days account. So in effect, I now like I'm a super user of it and I can get access to everything, but I'm kind of not really interested in reading somebody's history with emails. Um, but that info at saberfeedback.com account, yeah, I guess I could go back and look at past emails. So I just don't have the time to do that. We also have to remember that there were, I think, less than 50 paying customers at the time I took it over. So the chances of us needing to know the history of any particular encounter with a customer was slow. And if it happened, I could just ask the, cust- the specific customer at the time. I think if it's something about uh, acquisition at this level, is this a lot of things that are just not important. You can worry about them. You can fret and think, oh, I really need to get this resolved just in case this happens. But ultimately, us us business owners are often flying by the seat of our pants anyway. We're, we're used to dealing with situations we've never experienced before and just having to work it out as we go. And that was the case with taking over a new business. You mentioned that the previous owner had built a lot of kind of integrations with different services. Mm-hmm. Did you kind of take over all of those accounts and at the time of the sale as well? Or were there any kind of accounts that you missed and kind of had to hand over like a couple of months later? We had listed all of those accounts in the assets to be taken over in the contract. And I think we found a problem just with one service, which was Trello. It turned out that the Trello integration kind of belongs to a personal account or a specific account, which was uh, the owner's personal Trello account, and it wasn't easy to transfer over. Actually, that's still on the to-do list of things to resolve to work out. The integrations have been a bit of a, a headache because we've got so many of them and each third-party services we're integrating with, they update, they change their APIs, they deprecate things and actually it's on the list of things to do later this year is to go through and sort out which of those needs to be overhauled. Are the businesses separate in terms of like the account that you use? Like, Do you separately log into like info at saverfeedback.com? Or like mm-hmm. are some of things kind of merge or kind of like the hosting account, for example, is that kind of shared in some way? No, I've kept them separate. There's two reasons for that. One is it makes it easier to track how much money I'm making or losing for each product. And second, one day when I sell one or the other product, it makes it easier to do when you have this history of all the expenses of each product and you don't have to separate things. And I was quite definite about doing that. In the previous product, I, I had the desktop app that I sold a, a couple of years ago. I had started that when I had no idea what I was doing. And I made some classic mistakes, such as setting up an AWS account that was attached to my personal account I used for buying books. It was the same email address. And it turns out that you can't actually separate things easily. And when you, once you've done that, so it was actually quite a painful process of setting up a new AWS account when it was time to sell the product and gradually move things over and doing that in a way that we didn't have too much downtime. So I had learned from that to try and keep things very separate. And even though it means that I now have to have some duplicated accounts, for example, we use Postmark for both products and it would be cheaper to use one Postmark account for both. 
I think it's just better to keep them separate and accept that there's going to be a, some extra expense. Does your accountant provide some sort of like separate kind of management accounts for both of those? Or like, do you have some good way to kind of gauge like the profitability of the respective businesses within your company? Uh, the accountant doesn't help there. She probably would if I actually had a registered company for each product, but I don't. I just do this myself. I keep an informal kind of profit and loss for each product in a spreadsheet. It's not 100% accurate. It's not correct in terms of working out how much tax I have to pay, but it's enough for me to keep my finger on the pulse to work out exactly how each product is going. Those are all the, the questions I had written down. No, they were really, really good questions. Thanks a lot for taking your time to answer them. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed being uh, interviewed on my own podcast. <laughs> you maybe uh, have a future as a podcast interviewer. I have a couple of questions for you, if I may. Why, why do you care about these things? What's going on that makes you curious about all this stuff? I got an email recently from a lawyer at a company asking for an NDA because they felt that my standard terms of service weren't promising that I don't like just randomly share the data, like the actual kind of monitoring data that I collect. Maybe that's true. I don't know. I need to get the terms of service update at some point. But yeah, I just kind of end up signing the NDA. And part of me kind of worries that that might be like a bad idea that, you know, like if somebody like you kind of ends up buying the company, they will want to kind of read that and they will want their NDA reviewed by their lawyers and that kind of thing. I asked the lawyer for some tweaks to the NDA about like selling the company at some point, for example, and being able to kind of transfer that NDA because originally that was excluded. Uh, and they mentioned, well, currently like the terms of service, for example, don't I can address the issue of transferring the relationship in the future. And yeah, that caused me to get out to you on Twitter and ask like how you kind of handled that with Sabre. If I was in that situation, if the previous owner of Sabre had an NDA with a customer, if I was in the position of the previous owner, I would just make sure I state this up front in the sales, in the negotiations of price and, and the way of handing this over. I'd be saying, look, this is just something you need to know. You you might find that they want a new NDA, they might be difficult, but it's just one of the risks that you highlight that the purchaser has to accept. And if they don't accept it, then you know, the sale doesn't happen. They might uh, ask for a small discount. They might say, look, we're going to assume there's a 50% chance that customer cancels, in which case there's a 50% chance the, the annual revenue drops by this amount. But I think it's just one of those many little risks in place that you, you just deal with. And this is where the, the contract we had in place done by a lawyer was helpful. You know, this is the contract that said the, the seller represents that there are no like possible uh, liabilities that they're hiding, that they're upfront about everything. And then it just forces the, the seller to think a bit and go, mm, oh, there was that one, that NDA. Yeah, okay, I better mention that and talk about that. We're running out of time, so let's wrap things up. Matt, thanks for being on the show and taking on my usual role as interviewer. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye.